Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glishich, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mark Steinberg about his new book, Russian Utopia, A Century of Revolutionary Possibilities. Mark Steinberg is a professor emeritus within the Department of History at the University of Illinois. Um, most of our audience will be familiar with Mark's research. Um, he has uh, written a number of um, excellent books, uh, which include Voices of Revolution, Proletarian Imagination, Self-Modernity, and the Sacred in Russia, uh, Petersburg, Pandesiakl, The Russian Revolution, and uh, The Russian Utopia is his uh, latest book. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Real pleasure. Uh, Mark, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, well, you gave a, an introduction. That's good. Um, <laughs> I'm from San Francisco. <laughs> That's that defines me in a lot of ways. I grew up. I grew up in California. Went to school out there. Went to Berkeley for my PhD. But I've also lived in New York City, which is where I'm residing now. When I'm not in Italy, which is the other place I live since I retired uh, last year. Uh, and and so now I'm just a full time writer, which is actually very uh, very fun and reader too. I get to read more books. So. It's good. Uh, the only thing I would add is that uh, a couple of the books are in Russian now, if there are people who prefer to read it in the original, uh, not how I wrote it, but all the quotations uh, in both my Russian Revolution book and now Proletarian Imagination, all the original Russian texts have been uh, used to uh, go back to the for all the quotations rather than my English translations. So uh, it serves as a sort of resource for that reason, too. Yeah, that sounds terrific. And uh, look, today we're going to focus on your uh, latest work, um, Russian Utopia. Um, it's a fantastic topic. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> huge. Some, and it, it is huge. And I, I guess I'm interested, you know, this work came out um, in 2021 as part of uh, Bloomsbury, uh, Bloomsbury's um, Russian Shorts book series. And this is kind of a collection of books that are published in this slim format that examine kind of key concepts, personalities, and movements in Russian history. And I was wondering if you can tell us, you know, how did you select the topic of utopia for this book, which which is huge, as you say, um, and and what are the kind of advantages and and and, and challenges also of discussing such a big topic in a slim format. <laughs> Yeah, very slim. It's the shortest book I've ever written, uh, which also meant I could uh, sit down and write it in a matter of several months. And it's sort of I wrote it at an interesting time in history during the pandemic, during the Black Lives Matter movement, all of which sort of shaped my thinking uh, in a lot of ways. But when I when the series started, the idea was take on big questions. That was the idea in a book that's not only about past and present in Russia, uh, that's not only uh, big questions in a small book, uh, but written in a manner that's uh, accessible, exciting, interesting um, for students, for general readers uh, and the like. So I I began to think what to write. And at one point I thought, well, I've worked on the Russian Revolution so many times, maybe I'll ask if they're interested, but uh, they weren't actually, precisely because everybody's written, there's so many books on the Russian Revolution. Uh, So I thought, all right, I'll go bigger. Uh, And as it happened, I was, uh, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad they said no to the Russian Revolution. Enough is enough on that subject in a way. Um, And so I had gotten this, in the midst of working on my Russian Revolution book, I got very, I have a chapter of, uh, called Utopians. 
And I, I got the idea of thinking about that as a particular approach to thinking about the revolution. And again, all people who would have said, how you insult me by calling me a utopian. And so that, that's part of uh, part of the concept here. And, and so I got so interested in that, that it happened while I was at the University of Illinois, uh, there was a big, uh, the Humanities Center organized a thing to come up with big three-year thematic projects. And I thought, I don't know, how about global utopias? All utopian thought it, across disciplines in the humanities. Uh, and I put in a proposal for what I thought it could be and also how it was relevant to the present. And uh, it was accepted. So for three years, I actually uh, coordinated a project on global utopias and so was reading widely about utopian thinking around the world and utopian practices uh, around the world. And so I thought, well, you know, why not? Why not take that concept and think about it? Look at Russian history, something I've been studying for so long through that uh, lens. And in a lot of ways, when I wrote this tiny little book, it, it really does reflect, it's like 100 pages or something, and big type and small paper. Uh, it really does reflect uh, my whole history of teaching uh, about Russia. Because I began to think, how do you teach, I mean, one might say, even in a semester or a couple semesters, how do you teach the history of a whole country? Uh, and historians are naturally interdisciplinary. We don't think there's like, we don't just do politics. Uh, we do everything, including art and literature and human experience. And so I thought, you know, what if I looked at all uh, as much of Russian history as I could through that prism and then compressed it to its really uh, sort of heart of what it could, uh, what was there. And that was the hard part, as you say, what are the challenges of it? It's really hard because... You know, if one of the arguments one could make about Russian history is is the the sort of stereotype is everything turns out badly, uh, revolutions always fail, utopias become dystopias. Um, I, I always pushed back against that. Sometimes I referred to it as the historiographical tyranny of outcomes approach. It's like every time there's an outcome, we let that rule what is possible, what could have happened. And I, I always liked the idea of thinking about what might have been because it might have been. It's not just, oh, it's too bad that ideal uh, failed. And so thinking, uh, there's so much of it in Russian history. My first book proposal clearly was for a book of 400 pages. I mean, I thought I could do it in a small, so a lot of things had to drop. And so when I made the choices, the real challenge was I didn't want to be superficial. Um, I didn't want to write just sort of, one might say, a, a short introduction to a topic that took a big picture from way up high. I wanted to get down it because it's the type of historian I am. It's what I've always done. I wanted to get down in the, you know, every day in the streets and people's lives and people's heads in people's emotions, um, really. And so what I ended up doing is trying to find the right mix of stories uh, images, uh, and especially individual stories uh, that were not typical, because actually, long since have decided uh, typicality in history is an illusion. Uh, and if all we write about is some people who are typical, we're actually doing some sort of um, epistemological violence to the reality of people's lives. Nobody's typical, uh, but they're revealing, they're telling of things beyond themselves. So I kept looking for the right people, the right stories, not many of them, uh, that I thought would be telling beyond their own story. So without losing all the, the rich, lived uh, experience of these people, even if it's going to be brief, 
but also that always spoke beyond their own particular story. So otherwise it wouldn't look like a book. It would look like a smorgasbord of mini vignettes. So it was hard, though. It was hard. A lot of people went into the, uh, uh, the uh, well, the, the electronic, uh, you know, what I call the X-Files, the extracted material that I started writing and said, ah, no room, no room. I, uh, easily twice as big as the book itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I look, I, I um, you know, as a reader, uh, but also a writer, I immediately thought, this is this must have been such a, such a challenging process of writing because uh, the book, remains this complexity of, um, of, of the topic and the richness of these stories. And yet, yet the format is, is, is truly um, a challenge. And it is really um, a work of art to try to re- reconcile those, those two it, things. It was fun to do. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And it comes through as a book. There's uh, obviously such a, such a depth of background um, uh, and, and the, the, the slimness of the, of the volume is uh, deceptive in many ways. Yeah. Um, it's not something I would have written, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. No, 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 it's no, a sort of synthesis and culmination of a lot of thinking about Russia. And not just about Russia. I mean, you take on a topic like utopia, you know, you can't, it's, it's always a question of, uh, like all of what most of us do when we, when we talk about Russia, is, is Russia's part of the world. It's always been part of the world. Uh, and therefore, it means thinking about the concept and in all of the multiple places it's, it's appeared and how Russians fit, fit into that. Absolutely. Um, I'm interested. You mentioned these different stories that that you explored and and wanted to 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 uh, bring to the readers. Um, and with respect to these stories that you've selected for the book, um, in this context, what does the word utopia mean? Um, if you can uh, walk us a little bit through the definition, which is also again quite quite complex. <laughs> <laughs> it's complex and it's contested. And as I said, every every literally everybody in the book, although there's a couple of moments when some of them actually use the word utopia in positive terms. But those are really the exceptions. I mean, they all wanted to distance themselves from the accusation uh, of being utopian. And that's that, that sort of shapes my definition, uh, as well as a lot of reading and a lot of thinking about all these different utopian uh, forms around the world. Um, because what, what I basically argue in the book, uh, and I believe, uh, is that uh, it's exactly not what everybody thinks it is when they say, I'm not a utopian, right? Because what is a utopian? Utopian is hopeless fantasy, ideas without any connection to reality whatsoever, uh, and therefore doomed to either fail or if you try to impose uh, your fantasies on reality, you come up with dystopia. And so what, what I try to suggest is actually let's let's set aside that stereotype, although acknowledging it because it, it comes up in how people talk, and think about an alternative. And fortunately, I didn't have to invent a new concept. Uh, there's actually, I, I discovered, um, a long history of alternative ways of thinking about utopia, probably most importantly, starting with uh, the uh, sort of Marxist, neo-Marxist thinker Ernst Bloch, uh, when he wrote in the middle of World War of World War One at a very dark time, uh, a book called The Spirit of Utopia in German. Uh, and later he was able to leave uh, Germany, came to the United States, sat around in, I think, the Harvard Library, and decided to explore every utopian idea ever around the world and wrote this gigantic three-volume book called The Principle of Hope, which is one of his ideas about it. But I was reading Bloch and I was reading uh, Walter Benjamin, who also thought about utopia and time and possibility in interesting ways, and then 
uh, Frederick Jameson, and a whole series of thinkers, many of them influenced by Ernst Bloch. And so if I, in a nutshell, uh, Bloch's idea is, uh, and it's the one I, I've at least adapted, if not adopted, uh, is that utopia is not a hopeless fantasy and all the bad things that come from trying to realize or impose that, but a critical orientation toward reality. Uh, and that critical orientation toward reality, which isn't to say it's not related to reality, uh, it criticizes the limits of what we think is possible, opens up possibility. So as it happens, the subtitle of the book, A Century of Revolutionary Possibilities, that word possibility is a very full of layers of interest, but it's very much connected to this definition. And the critical side, right, a critical relationship to reality is really important. One of, one of my favorite phrases from Ernst Bloch was that it disrupts the darkness of the lived moment. When we're in the midst of the darkness, and we're in a lot of darkness through most of history, uh, many people are in at the moment now in a lot of ways, uh, what the critical utopian, what he called utopian impulse does, is it challenges our natural inclination to think, oh, we'll never get out of this. We are in deep trouble. Uh, And so it disrupts the darkness it opens up little moments of vision of it could be otherwise because it has to be otherwise. It disrupts our expectation about what's real. Uh, and, and there's where uh, Walter Benjamin does some wonderful things with elaborating this in a beautiful and poetic way. Both of them were very poetic philosophers. Uh, and Benjamin, you know, talks about famously about these sort of glimmers of messianic time that appear and then disappear. But if we could find how to grasp them, we open up new possibility. And for Benjamin, this was what a revolution was. And he used this great image of uh, revolutions are a leap in the open air of history. And of course, this is a play on Karl Marx's idea of the leap from the kingdom of Uh, necessity to the kingdom of freedom, Uh, what Benjamin says is it's not a leap from one place to another. It's a leap into the open air of possibility, into the open air of uh, history. And that's what I think Bloch calls the principle of hope or the utopian impulse. Uh, And it's it's what I end up using as a way to to ask, to sort of re-ask, you know, so let's go back and look at all these Russian uh, thinkers and activists and practitioners and people who don't even know they're thinking about possibility and and sort of reclaim their critical relationship to the darkness of the lived moment, their critical relationship to possibility, uh, to reality. Challenging reality is it's maybe it's not as limited as we think it is. Maybe the what has turned out to be what is isn't what can be. And so that's sort of in a, a big nutshell uh, the idea here. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I guess um, utopia, as you said, um, has generally that negative uh, meaning or people um, use it in, in such manner. And um, it's really terrific to open up that and, and, yeah, those layers of possibilities of what it actually means and just what a rich term it is. And, and um, especially the, the works that you mentioned written in such a difficult moments in history, um, in those moments to be able to open up uh, that vision was was quite critical. Um, I'm interested in a in the theme of flight that you uh, you open your book with uh, this discussion of representation of flight in visual art and in literature from 18th century to 20th century. Um, and can you tell us maybe a bit how does this theme of flight connect to the history of utopian uh, thinking in Russia? 
Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's figuring out how to organize a book that's short and so broad and encompassing and meant to also be deep was quite a challenge. And each chapter uh, sort of opens with an, an image, uh, a story that I think is really exemplary of a lot of things, uh, no matter from any period in the time. I mean, I generally the book covers 18th century through the 20th, uh, but each chapter has a particular sort of uh, emblematic opening. And in this case, the book does too, after the introduction, because this whole opening chapter is is so weird uh, in a way that it takes on an image uh, that is that appears in all sorts of different uh, moments. But it also has its opening image, and that opening image, and this I think goes to how why I sort of it's it's the one that really drew me to thinking about flight is um, Konyonkov, the the um, uh, one of the revolutionary artists at the time. He's a sculptor, built this huge, massive uh, um, bas relief sculpture. That is on uh, that was put on the Kremlin Wall facing Red Square and installed in 1918 on the first anniversary of the uh, revolution. This is Sergei uh, Konyonkov. It's it's was up there through the 30s, but it eventually came down. And, and Len, there's pictures of you know Lenin is standing there and Sverdlov and all the leaders of the Soviet state because it's the memorial over the dead who died in the October Revolution. And so it it's a it, it one might say it is the most official first anniversary, which is always a key moment, symbol of what the revolution and the revolution saw itself as connected to all previous forms of thinking about transformation in Russia, what it was. And what is this image? It's it's a, a gigantic, I think, angel. It's an androgynous figure, although uh, Sergei Konyonkov says it's a it's female. Uh, but angels, you know, are always androgynous, even if they're male. Uh, and it's it's huge. I mean, it's a gigantic thing with huge white wings. Most of this uh, uh, sculpture, which is bas relief, so it's like a huge painting uh, that he painted, by the way, in the same colors as uh, St. Basil's Cathedral, so that would speak to it across the angle of the square. This gigantic, you know, white wings, and it's it's very weird. It's wearing this figure is wearing a crown. Uh, holding a palm branch, wearing a crown of eagle feathers, which actually he got the idea from the statue on the top of the uh, Congress in the United States. Uh, he was it was very uh, eclectic. Uh, the rising suns, of course, in the background saying something about something like October Revolution. Uh, and on the ground are all the swords and, you know, discarded guns because, you know, war is is now ending and the the sculpture he called and their words are written on one of the fallen red banners there's a huge red flag too uh to the fallen in the struggle for peace and brotherhood of peoples that was sort of uh the idea and there's a concert an amazing concert that goes with it with a choir singing a song written by a, a a couple of three worker poets which is all about uh resurrection even though the because this is over the dead, but it's the resurrection image where people will literally fly out of the ground and a whole new world uh, would appear very millennial. So here's this crazy image of this winged angel representing revolution and singing about resurrection. And, and I kept coming back to this story and I find found it incredibly interesting. And then I began looking, although I had noticed when I, when I did my book, Proletarian Imagination, I have a small section on images of flight, human flight, 
sometimes wings, but human flight in a worker poetry. And that too, when I first read it, I thought, that is weird. Why do they keep talking about flying and also resurrection, uh, by the way? Um, And I began to find all of these poems where they talk about, you know, humans flying and transforming the world and wearing wings and growing wings when you become conscious. And even time itself has fiery wings. One of the poets uh, comes up with that sort of image. And one of the first Soviet books of worker poetry was called The Fire Winged Factory. And I just found this incredibly interesting. So I began looking deeper and found, you know, numerous, I, some of them I should have remembered, you know, uh, people flying to space, uh, Bogdanov's Red Star, for example, uh, all of these artists, uh, Gancharova uh, and others, you know, using images of, of flight, uh, 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 Kandinsky, Manlievich, everybody's got these images. Mayakovsky's famous book, Flying Proletarian from 1925, uh, of course, Alexandra Kollontai talking about emancipatory ways of thinking about sex in her book, Winged Eros, uh, this weird uh, but brilliant and often overlooked novel by um, Mikhail Kuzmin in 1906 called Wings, about when gay men learn to accept their homosexuality as emancipatory, as representing new the new, and he called the book Wings. And I could go on. So how does it connect each one of those stories it seems to me that uh and i could and i could give more examples all sort of wove around the idea of what is what are the limits of reality well humans don't fly humans don't have wings on their backs humans aren't resurrected our if we at least if especially for secular people and most of these people were relatively secular you know this these are not real and yet therefore they become symbols in many ways, uh, not in this case, we will grow wings and we will fly, although airplanes change some of that, uh, or flying to space. There really was this idea that let's think about the limits of what we think is possible or being, you know, in Kuzmin's novel, being a gay man in Russia. Uh, still a question whether that could be possible. Uh, and he, of course, he had to go to, to Italy to really figure out uh, what, it, what it meant. And so I think it really is utopian in the sense of a critical challenge to the darkness, to the limits of what reality as it is holds in visions of real possibility. Uh, and I think that applied to all of them. So it, to me, it's sort of visually, because these were visual images of people flying or growing wings, uh, visually suggested, uh, metaphorically, but, but richly, a sort of idea, an image that expressed the same sort of utopian impulse, as, as Bloch called it. Hmm. And you, you know the, the you know, winged figures and uh, the limits of human um, possibilities, right, what we can do as humans, and um, this is certainly a period that uh, thinks about the concept of new person, uh, new, new, better human, human 2.0, <laughs> quite a bit. Um, and this is such a big focus, especially um, um, during the uh, revolutionary uh, period, but of course also uh, later on in Soviet political um, and, and creative life. And um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, who were these new uh, women and new men that, that come through these, these examples that you use? You know, it's interesting because I, 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 until you just asked the question, I wasn't thinking so much of the connection of, one might say, f- humans who can fly 
and the new person, which has a sort of history. But but it does connect, and it actually <laughs> connects in all sorts of ways. But one of them is actually uh, one of the most popular, almost most popular book in uh, Russia by Friedrich Nietzsche is, is uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, where one of the things that Zarathustra says to humanity is, you know, someday you're going to learn to fly. And when you learn to fly, all that heaviness of gravity and weight and the world as it is will disappear. In fact, even the stones will stop sitting on the ground. They'll fly up into the heavens. And it's such a weird image, but it's actually the whole point is the Superman, right? I mean, that's what Zarathustra is talking about. So I hadn't actually thought about it. I mean, I mentioned I think the the Nietzsche quote in the flight chapter, but in some ways it is talking about the Superman, which is one of the ideas of the new person that weaves through a lot of. I mean, Nietzsche's influence was was huge. So, so you ask, who were the new people? Well, you know, in a way, I, I, I'm inclined to think I don't know if there were. Uh, I mean, maybe some of the people I talk about in their time tried to be new people, you know, represent the future human, even a super, you know, sort of superhuman type of person beyond the limits of the ordinary person of the day. You know, there are people in the chapter like, I mean, I go back to Nikolai Novikov uh, during Catherine the Great's reign, but also Radishchev and others. Uh, Belinsky, one of my favorites, uh, because he thought so much about what a human being should be. Uh, among women uh, who become who are very important in this story, Vera Zulich, uh, Alexandra Kollontai. But really, it's not so much that they were new people as they and others that I talk about in the chapter. Trotsky, uh, for example, at the end, um, it was sort of what the new person should be. And all of them were thinking, all of these people who are discussed in the chapter thought a lot about what the new person should be, which is to say what is what a person should be. And, and these ideas of the human being, Chilevyek, uh, the human person, inner person, lichnost in, in the Russian, were so important to these um, to these thinkers. And the chapter actually has an epigraph, if I remember, by Belinsky, who was just, he's great to quote, because he said amazing things in the 1830s, early 1840s. And one of the things he says is, you know, what everything is really, it all comes down to this. We need to awaken in the people, the Narod, the Russian people, a sense of their human dignity, lost in the mud and the filth for so many centuries. And, and sometimes I think a good deal of Russian history could be taught or thought through that idea, crushing people's human dignity. But when they become awakened to, wait, we are our human beings and deserve to be treated as such and deserve a society, that's the other side of Russian history, the side of, of belief, of possibility, of hope, of, of revolution uh, at times. And so uh, in a way, it's, it's being a real human being. Uh, and in the chapter, uh, the, the opening story there, of course, naturally is, is Chernyshevsky's novel, uh, What is to be Done, uh, which he says is a novel about new people. And, and I'm not sure Chernyshevsky would have ever said, I'm a new person, but his characters, uh, and especially um, Vera Pavlovna, the sort of central character who dreams about the new person, which turns out to be herself fully emancipated, fully discovering what she could be as a human being 
and any woman, women need to be as human beings, uh, and eventually even transformed as a god, a sort of superman, one might say, Nietzschean uh, terms. And Chernyshevsky says, well, I'm showing you the new people, people like Vera Pavlina and her dreams. Uh, but he, he said, actually, in the novel, I, I don't know what they'll really look like. Um, and, and this is one of the consistent themes. You get it from uh, Belinsky and Chernyshevsky all the way down to Kalantai, who also says at one point, we don't really know what the future, um, and Trotsky says that, we don't know what the future fully developed new person, hu- fully human being will look like. You know, we can't even imagine, Chernyshevsky actually says in the novel, we can just feel that these so-called new people in his novel, he says they're just harbingers of the future. They're not the future. And that's something we see from, let's say, uh, and, and it, it's, you know, it was fun to try to see if I could connect all these from Novikov to Trotsky, right? I mean, Novikov writes all these things, especially after he becomes a Freemason and becomes more radicalized. You know, it's all about the human being, the dignity of the human being. This becomes absolutely his obsession. Leech, uh, uh, Belinsky makes the same thing, especially around this category of the human self, Leechnist. Um, when Vera Zasulich shoots Trepov, you know, and becomes, you know, as a terrorist, she justifies herself before the court uh, by saying, you know, he just trampled on the dignity of a human being uh, because that's Trepov went to beat up, beat up a prisoner and insulted him. And she said, we can't allow human, you know, human beings to be insulted. It's a vision of what the fully developed human being would be, which is to live in a world where people are treated to their full dignity. And one could go on with, you know, uh, the conception of the new person in, um, in the Soviet Union, uh, Trotsky really went crazy and started imagining, you know, uh, the new human type that, you know, yeah, there's all these great humans in history, right? New people, uh, Marx and Aristotle, he throws them. But, you know, he said, but really the new emancipated, truly future human being will be so beyond them that they'll just, you know, be way down on the ground. They will go above these peaks. All of this is very, you know, the sort of, uh, Ubermensch, the human that is beyond the human of today, who flies, of course, in in Nietzsche. Uh, But it really is ultimately very simple. And I think in that sense, Belinsky captured it, which is why I chose his epigraph, uh, best of all, which is what is the the future, what is the utopian ideal we're fighting for when human beings are treated like human beings, when they understand their full capacity, and then anything is, is possible. And it's a very powerful idea. Uh, that that it seem it seems to me, um, and a very much, you know, if you go back to the definition of uh, utopia as a sort of challenge, a critique of the darkness of the lived present, it challenges every moment in history, which is most of them, when human beings are not treated with their full dignity. And you could do this through the history of Russia, from uh, I don't know the beginning all the way through. Putin's Russia now, but you could do it in the history of the United States. You can do it in the history of Europe, uh, slavery being one of the examples for for the U.S. Uh, it, it's a it's a very powerful utopian idea, in the sense that it says it doesn't have to be this. People don't have to be treated um, in this way, and it's really interesting because to me, one of the things when I worked on the revolution, uh, 
in fact, on my very first book, which was on printing workers, it was my dissertation. Uh, one of the things that really struck me is how ordinary people, in this case, workers, printing workers in, in Russia in the 19th century, and early 20th century, kept saying that the most, the reason they uh, didn't, couldn't accept the life of the world as it was, the reason they decided to become socialists, the reason they decided to join the revolution, the reason they went on strike was to be treated like a human being. And they just kept using this. And they go beyond that. It's, it's to live like a human being. And in Russian, it's you know, live in a human manner. It's a pretty radical idea. And for me, the, the new person, uh, we haven't realized it fully yet in this world, the new person represents that fully developed possibility. And you can see it from Novikov to Trotsky, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And this uh, framework really of dignity, it really does capture um, that uh, search for a new person um, that's at the heart of this, uh, these examples. Uh, and it's a, yeah, really uh, such a simple, but yet such a difficult and powerful framing at the same time. And I have to say, you know, going, one of the things that made this book really interesting and fun to write is to be able to go back to all of these people who I had taught taught about and read about before and read some of their primary texts. But I went back to like everybody's writings and said, with this lens can what do i see and the other is if you're going to put novikov and and kolontai and balinsky and trotsky in the same chapter you know looking for words and ideas that connect them and whether i you know and zasulich and all of these people and and that's what i think i found it meant selective quoting but i think it tries to highlight these patterns of where exactly they they always speak beyond their own particular story uh their own particular lives yeah yeah um, i'm interested in another um, aspect of your of your book um that focuses on architecture um and this is um something that that um, i know you're quite interested in and you worked quite a bit on cities uh, in particular i mean have this wonderful um kind of quote that uh, you know that ar- architecture and utopia uh, have long been allies. Um, what is the nature of this alliance in Russia between um, architecture and utopia, both before but also after the revolution? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's it, you know in a way it's architecture and it's also city planning, um, which I think is an extension of architecture uh, because our, uh, you know an architect will design a a building or a, a park. Um, a, sp- a confined space, but by extension, you you define all the spaces of public life, uh, of shared life, especially. And and I was particularly interested not in those building private buildings, but really building public spaces. And uh, you know, every history history of architecture um, likes to uh, always emphasizes that it, you know architecture is is putting ideas, putting values, putting vision in stone. Uh, it, it And if part of utopia is these aren't fantasies, these are attempts to transform reality. Uh, architecture and city to city planning are, are great examples uh, of that. And I go in the in the chapter, I, I, I could probably go further back. I mean, I do go back in a way to <laughs> New Jerusalem and the, uh, you know, Renaissance idea of the happy city, Città Felice. Uh, Felice. Um, but I really end up starting with Petersburg because in the Russian context, the vision, Peter the Great's vision 
of creating this city in a place that had no really developed uh, urban, even medieval form, uh, was all about ideas. I mean, every avenue, every uh, of course, Andre Bieli later, you know, talks about how you know the 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 torment, the the dystopia, one say, of the rectilinear city. But you go back to its beginning; it really is a vision of rational, ordered, happy, uh, full of I- visions of of human possibility. And I go from Saint Petersburg up to uh, another state-centered vision, uh, the Stalinist transformation of, of Moscow into a, a new Rome, uh, Rome being not a liberating and emancipating place, um, and in particular the Palace of Soviets. So there's this whole range. And it's also worth saying that in the last couple chapters, the story of Utopia gets a bit darker, or a lot darker, uh, because it, inclu- it includes more top-down visions. Uh, it includes the state, uh, which the following chapter does even more. Uh, and and it's, it's worth remembering, utopia is not, as much as I want it to be, liberating and emancipating and, you know, making the world a better place, to use that cliche. It actually makes, it, it can be quite uh, horrible, uh, which isn't to say it always must become that. That is sort of logic that every dystopia Every utopia becomes a dystopia, uh, but it but it's worth remembering, and I tried not to exclude uh, cases where utopia was not even in conception liberating, uh, unless you define certain forms of liberation as purity and control and order, uh, which some people uh, do. But the chapter, I mean, my my ideas, ha- there's a lot else going on. So somewhere between Petersburg and the Palace of Soviets, one might say. It are are these sort of visions of these tr- sort of on the one hand the real city of the present right which was the capitalist city um, was presented in everything from worker poetry to uh, discussions of the new architecture um, as dark and dirty and oppressive and big tall. Build, they loved New York, big, tall skyscrapers that oppress the individual, which is why it gets ironic. Stalinism is all about skyscrapers, um, or not ironic, but but appropriate maybe in a sad and unfortunate way. But the, this vision of here is the old, dirty, filthy, oppressive capitalist city. That's how it was often framed. But what is the future city going to look like? And I became quite interested in that idea, the, the socialist city uh, as... Um, everything that was bad in capitalism would not be there. It would be clean. It would be healthy. It would most interestingly liberate the individual. And so, you know, there was this sort of disurbanist movement where people would live in their individual little pods that they could move, high mobility. Um, green cities, you would be surrounded, you know, by by healthy uh, nature. Um, and... and even the, the weirdest one of all, which I, I love talking about because it is the, the most seemingly fitting the utopian tradition of absolute insane fantasy, uh, is uh, Krudikov's diploma pro- project, uh, which he called the, fut- the city of the future, simply. But everybody called it the flying city. So here we get flight uh, back in. And, and it's, it, was, it was his diploma project to get his architecture degree. And he was a real architect. I mean, he, he built, there's still subway stations in Moscow and schools and buildings that he designed. I mean, he wasn't a crazy lunatic or an artist. 
He wasn't a he wasn't a futurist artist just imagining things. He really wanted to build something concrete, and so he came up with this idea. Let's imagine, he said, "Please give me my architecture degree." A city in the air where the apartment buildings are all floating and people go to work uh, in little capsules that fly to the ground and the factories are down on the ground because they're dirty you don't want to live with those you live in the air and and he you know people uh, it it was this sort of entire world of uh, based on forms of transportation in which flight was really important but what makes it interesting is he insisted and and he he got his degree and his some people made fun of it but his 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 teachers and the head of the the architecture school said no 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 those of you who think this is some crazy utopian thing miss the point because his presentation was all about here's the technology of the day let's look at it trains and zeppelins and air flight uh, and all these new technological possibilities and therefore uh, it's just a matter of time Till these things would be realized. In other words, he wasn't saying we're going to build this today. He's not an idiot. Uh, he was a very he was a, 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 a realist in some ways. But he said, "But look at technology. It it opens up our sense of the possible." And so, even the craziest of all, the flying city, was actually a very practical challenge to the limits of how people thought the world would look like. Uh, and then he went and built buildings on the ground because that's what was uh, what was possible. So I, I just found this idea of the city. I mean, I've always been fascinated by urban life and how the city is interpreted. And my St. Petersburg book has a lot about what that city represents in terms of the human being, in terms of uh, social possibility, but mostly in terms of the, the sort of hell of urban experience and how to get out of it. Uh, I, I found doing a chapter on the new city, um, uh, which I think was what I call the chapter, is was a way to think about uh, precisely reality, which was the darkness of the lived moment in a way, and uh, and possibility. Uh, and then you get to the terrible palace of Soviets and everything that Stalin represented, uh, which was also utopian. And, and there's, by the way, a great, I don't know if you or somebody's in, interviewed uh, um, Catherine Zubovich on her new book uh, called Moscow Monumental, but it's the best. You've done it. All right. Good. Uh, it's no, I, good. I know. It's, yeah, I'm familiar with that work. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really great insight into that history. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. And talk really helps us understand the Palace of Soviets and what they were, the vision of this, uh, this type of transformative space. Uh, but in this case, one in which the individual was nothing. And I would say in most of the sort of architecture that I'm looking at in, uh, you know, the socialist architecture from the 20s, and especially the 1920s and before, was about liberating the individual. And in that sense, Stalinism was a big change, but no less utopian, just a different utopia. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that uh, theme of dignity comes through uh, uh, this work on, on, on the cities as well. On the one hand, lifting that individual out of that undignified life that city um, creates, but also um, the, the, the other side of that story is that uh, with the Stalinist architecture, there is no dignity in the, in the individual in, in, in that way. Um, Although to be, to be, you know, the other side of that is there was a belief that if you were just, you know, a worker living in Moscow 
and you looked at these skyscrapers and you looked at the palace of soviets and you went down into the subway uh, and saw the marble and the palace and uh, the marble and the chandeliers and the you know it looked like a palace underground it would elevate you in a collective not an individual way but it would in a way enhance your sense of look at what human beings are capable of so in a way it was not unconnected it was connected to some of these ideas it just took a different form uh one harder to admire one might say <laughs> yeah, um, I, in in your discussion of, of the cities, you also uh, mentioned Tatlin's um, tower, the famous monument to the third yeah, at the, uh, uh, international, and I think that's almost emblematic. That example, when people think about utopia, um, uh, that's you know usually the image that comes up uh, uh, within the Russian context, the Russian Revolution. But it's precisely that thing that you know that these these uh, projects were not about what we can build today, or it is about that future thinking. Um, and it's really yeah, fantastic to go back uh, to that. Uh, yeah. And thank you for rem- for bringing that up. That's actually the uh, Totland's Monument to Third International is actually mm. the the opening story in the chapter. Every chapter has its opening story from anywhere in the time, um, because I think it's it's remarkable. It's actually the cover image of the book. I mean, they decided that would be. I gave them several possibilities, and they they liked that one. And it is amazing because we think of it as nothing but a work of of imagination, a work of fantasy, a work of art. But of course, as we know, you know, Totland's whole point was this was a real building. This was going to be used uh, by the Communist International. It was both an artistic expression of possibility and technology and a very practical, real place uh, that would exist. And there's all and one of the one of the I think uh, architectural critics who talked about it said it's an amazing building. Uh, because it represents, and I think the words were something like possibility just out of reach. And it really felt, I think, and maybe if this was not 1919, if it was, you know, a different period, um, one could imagine actually building uh, such a thing. The style went out of style. No one would want to build that. And Stalin had a different vision of grandeur. But the idea of this sort of iron and glass tower with rooms that move in a symbolic way in relationship to the cosmos was both technologically possible, but not yet, just out of reach, and also very symbolic of a sort of openness and movement uh, of possibility. So yeah, it's a a wonderful piece. It it is probably one of the... um most iconic pieces of, of architecture that was never built, but yet continues to be so influential in, in um, and to this day with both artists and architects. Um, and um, there is actually a study where um, a group of architects tried to reconstruct it and, and think about whether they, right, could, whether it could be built. And it, it Technically, it can be built. <laughs> yeah, Tartan would be happy. Tartan would he, be happy. He would be. That. He would be pleased with that. Absolutely. And, and by the way, one might remember of Tartan's one of his one of his uh, pro- art projects at one point was this thing called Litatlin, uh, which were wings for a human being, a little bit like Icarus. Yeah, you know things, and they they could work also. You know that you would attach to your back and you would you would uh, fly. And of course, for those who know Russian, it's it's a it's a play on his own name, Tatlin and Litats to fly. So, you know, for Totland, this idea also of flight, which is why I could have written the whole book in a way on flying imagery, uh, 
the, the idea of flight was really central to thinking about, you know, a radical form of conceptualizing for Totlin, not painting anymore, but actually building things that had a place in the material world. And that's why he turned to designing clothes and designing wings and designing buildings. Uh, yeah, I think that they referred to clothing as architecture that you wear. <laughs> so it's all all connected in and and um, in that manner. I'm, uh, you touched a little bit on on this darker side, right, of utopia, um, and um, your final chapters. You you focus on um, kind of the role of utopian thinking within political life and state building in Russia. Um, Tell us a bit about the utopias that um, inspired Russian political leaders in this period that you cover in your book. Yeah, of course, again, all denying it was anything utopian, all very real, they thought all very real. You know, certainly when you get to the state, and even in choosing what chapters I would do, I had to, these were tough choices, but I think politics and the state are so critical, just as cities are critical and the human being to thinking about, you know, and I was thinking about the way you utopians and utopian thought has worked across the world globally and across time. And they're really key uh, ideas, the human being, the city, and the state. And, and here, you know, you really see the tension in thinking about politics and the state uh, between the sort of utopias that are meant to be liberating, especially liberating for the individual to create the human being in all his and her capacity, um, and utopias that are about uh, purity and perfection and power as the source of happiness, uh, which is also part of the utopian tradition. I mean, it's not coincidental. A lot of the classic utopias going back to more were on islands. You know, they were closed spaces, not open spaces, uh, not leaping into the open air of possibility, but leaping into the kingdom of I, happiness, one might say, as decided. And, and here, the, the, there's sort of those two sides are both visible. And I didn't want it to just be about the, you know, the hypertrophic state, uh, which Russia is so good at building uh, across its history, uh, again and again, one might say. Uh, and, you know, so I, in this case, I, I, I could, and I mentioned, you know, going back to the whole history of the Romanovs, um, especially back to Peter the Great, where you see this uh, vision uh, up through Stalinism. But the opening story is actually about Nicholas II, because I think he exemplifies it. Uh, and I have this image of Nicholas II dressing as uh, the Tsar uh, uh, Alexei um, in the 17th century. So here he is in 1903, pretending he's in you know the, the, the 1700s, uh, because his idea is the future is in the past. And Nicholas deeply believed that modernity was harming a happiness. Uh, it was not, you know, democracy and elections and the bourgeoisie and, you know, industrialization and all of these things were terribly threatening to his ideal society. And that is an ideal society where the state, in the, this case embodied in the ruler, the czar, and emperor loved the people and the people loved the czar. And they understood each other at a sort of spiritual level. And he really deeply believed in this sort of mystic unity uh, and therefore hated democracy, which was seemed artificial and hated bureaucrats. And, and so, you know, that story can be seen as repeated again and again, right? That uh, the, the good ruler who understands his people and pushes aside all those troublesome intellectuals and non-Russians and uh, bureaucrats and the like uh, in favor of this special 
uh, unity is something you see from uh, certainly from Nicholas through Stalin and and Putin, I'm afraid to say. Um, and, and so I, that is one of the stories. Uh, and it also includes thinking about Soviet authoritarianism. Um, uh, but also it's, and I would say most of the chapter, and I guess it's because that's the, the history story I prefer to tell, though I wrote a book on Nicholas II uh, during the revolution, is the counter tradition. Because uh, it's so easy to, you know, to to, rem- to, to constantly remind ourselves to, to think about Russia as as this authoritarian. It, you can never get away from the big, powerful state will keep coming back. And, and there, you know, one can think about the Decembrists, uh, who, by the way, go back to the idea of the dignity and rights of man, of the human being, as the key idea. Um Anarchists especially, I really enjoyed returning to Bakunin in particular, Bakunin who was, you know, part of the, had a long history in the intelligentsia, but his ideas about the state, which is basically never, no, he he says at one point, there will never, ever, ever be a good, just, and moral state. So just forget about it. That's not going to happen. And yet that's exactly the state self-image, good and just and moral uh, and he insisted on freedom uh, is the only way to realize humanity. Um, but then, you know, it wasn't just the anarchists. Um, the, the whole idea of the commune state that Lenin liked based on the French, you know, the French, uh, the Paris commune, uh, the Soviets uh, envisioned themselves as emancipatory and participatory. Um, and then as the state shifted toward a more authoritarian model, you, you get the Kronstadt rebellion, uh, which by the way, many people at the time said it's the second Paris commune. And of course for, for Lenin who who thought he was building a commune state to have these rebels, uh, uh, be the second Paris commune. It's like, you can't do that. There's only one Paris commune and it's us. Uh, it's not you, but they, believed it. And of course, workers' opposition, which brings Kalantai back, you know, who kept saying, you know, the only way we're going to have a, a socialist society is when the people themselves engage in mass self-activity. Uh, and she was true to her long history at once she turned temporarily until she couldn't uh, against the growing authoritarianism. So that, that counter-tradition you know, while there's the side that is the Romanov state and Stalinism and beyond, I don't go beyond Stalinism in this book. Um, uh, Stalinism is, is, is a continuation in a lot of sad ways, but it's the counter tradition that I find most appealing without forgetting that there's something utopianism in, you know, Nicholas II and in Stalin too. When we talk about this Utopias as, as political uh, p- potential, um, inevitably, I guess, or <laughs> inevitably, we, we come to to think about our own time. And um, you open your book, uh, and as you noted, um, thinking about the moment in which you wrote it in in sort of a global pandemic, uh, Black Lives Matter um, movement. Um, I'm in, interested, you know. But your thoughts on, on utopias today, their role today, uh, do we have capacity for utopian thinking? Well, we have a need. Whether we, we, I, don't, I can't always say whether we're going to embrace it. I think a lot of people are. Um, uh, you know, when I wrote this book, um, I didn't see where Putinism was heading. 
I certainly didn't see the the uh, war. Um, almost nobody did, as far as I could tell, except maybe Putin himself. Uh, but what's really striking about this, you know, the shutting down of Memorial and all of these, you know, growing authoritarianism, uh, and I think authoritarianism and empire always go together, sadly. But the really interesting story now is the dissent against huge odds. I mean, people who are engaging in everything from small to large forms of dissent to say, this is not who we are. This is not what Russia is. This is not what uh, our society uh, seeks. And especially young people engaging in amazingly bold and visionary activities that are absolutely utopian because sane people, my my friends, my generation are saying, oh, we're just doomed. There's nothing we could do except feel great shame for what, what our country's doing. But others, young people are saying, no, shame is no good. You need emotions of belief and hope and possibility and and cha- and take the risks to challenge. And so I, I find utopianism is in that good way, not that that way of fantasy is very strong uh, in Russia now. And of course, when I wrote the book, um, there was the, a global pandemic, uh, the worst since 1918. And I was very struck when I read um, Arundhati Roy, who I quote in the in the preface, you know, saying, you know, throughout history, these terrible times, one might say Bloch's notion of the darkness of the lived present, uh, are portals, are gateways in which we could go into something radically new. We could say what really matters in, in this world. Uh, and Black Lives Matter, which which was happening at exactly the same time, you know, people were in the street talking about the world doesn't have to be like this. Uh, and it wasn't just a, a sort of black liberation or black consciousness movement. This was a, a movement that attracted huge numbers of people to say, what does it mean to say black lives matter? It's, it's not to say all lives matter and ignore what's the reality of black uh, suffering in the United States. It's a way to say the world doesn't have to be as oppressive and dark and violent and brutal uh, as it is. And it gave people enormous hope uh, in the world could be different. Uh, and that's that to me is, is at the heart of those ideas that the whole book tells in a Russian way, um, you know, venturing beyond what is toward what not just could be, but what must be, what we, and that was sort of Bloch's central understanding is the utopian impulse are people throughout history and in all countries who just something in us as human beings say, this is how we must live. And therefore, if we don't, if we're not living that human life, then uh, we, we need to we need to believe that it is possible because it has to be possible. The sort of what is and what must be is sort of uh, the principle uh, of hope. And, uh, you know, I think that we know that history is full of the unexpected. We don't know how it's going to evolve. But if you accept that history is full of the unexpected and the contingent and the unpredictable, then the possi- possibility, uh, Benjamin's jump, leap into the open air of history, there's no guarantee you're not going to fall on your face from that leap. But it is possible. You know, there are these, you know, moments of possibility. And every t- we should, we can't afford to let uh, failures or, or lack of achievement lead us to not continuing to believe that the world must be a better place because otherwise we'll do nothing about it. And if we don't do anything about it, nothing will, will ever change. And that, you know, it wasn't true when I wrote the book, but it, it's become powerfully true for me 
in thinking about Russia now. I think that the return to this concept of utopia as, as a possibility um, is so critical for us today. <laughs> um, you know, people keep saying now it's more important than ever. And I, I don't quite like that phrasing, but it really is. It is uh, quite uh, critical. We find ourselves in a very peculiar, I think, moment. Um, and one could think about all the global problems of wars and violence and, and frankly, climate change, which we're all trying to ignore. Uh, but which is really coming down on us hard and authoritarianism. I mean, you know, Putin's not unique. Uh, authoritarians are uh, even on the rise, you know, fascists virtually in, in Europe, in Western Europe, even in places like Italy now, uh, the other place that I live. And so, yeah, there are, there are t the darkness of the live moment is very strong now. Uh, and therefore the utopian impulse has to be just as strong. Mm -hmm. Um, Mark, what comes after Utopia in terms of your work? <laughs> what are you working on at the moment? So I, I've shifted gears uh, in, a, in a different way um, and tried to take on something bolder and even more uh, embracing in a crazy sort of way. And, and it, it grew to the fact that I've been, I, I, as you said, I, I've had an interest in cities for a while. You know, my Petersburg book, but, you know, others and maybe it's not coincidence that I couldn't wait to retire and move to New York City where my son lives. Uh, and I used to work here as a taxi driver and a printer way back in the 1970s. I was actually driving a taxi when they were filming the movie Taxi Driver. I didn't have his experiences, but nonetheless, I was on the streets. Uh, <laughs> That's a fantastic around. way to, to uh, get to know a city <laughs> in, the best, uh, in the best and worst ways. <laughs> it really was. I learned a lot, but I, I found it attracted me to urban life. And so I've been fascinated by what cities are and represent and what they can be. And so I've been teaching urban history, comparative urban history for a number of years, and it, it ended up being my favorite class. And for some reason, my students' favorite class, I get more positive responses. I still hear from students in my city's classes. Uh, I actually taught the course in prison uh, uh, once uh, in, a, in a medium security prison in Illinois. And so, who these are very urban people uh, who were there. Uh, and so I became so interested with thinking about history uh, cities comparatively. And I said, well, maybe I should be bold and not just stay in my comfort zone of Russian history uh, and 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 go beyond it. And so what, what I decided to do, it, it, I changed minds on cities, but eventually I chose three cities, uh, New York City, uh, Bombay, now Mumbai in India, and Odessa uh, in uh, the Soviet Union, because I chose the 1920s. Uh, which for me, the long 1920s, roughly 1918 to somehow 1932 or uh, so. And the focus of the work, I mean, I've done research in all those places. Um, most of the research is finished, New York, Bombay, and Odessa. I was glad I could go to Odessa before the war, um, is to look at questions of moral stories, how people talk about moral life which is obviously in relationship to the urban experience, but really moral stories, because the more and more I thought about it, and morality was actually a theme in my very first book about printers, uh, it was, which was called Moral Communities, uh, it, it's really what the stories people tell about morality and immorality on the street, about the past and the present and what the world could be. But with these three cities, it allows me to think about a capitalist context and a colonial context uh, and a communist context, but all of them have elements of different ideologies at play for looking really at one, how people preach and one might say police morality, um, 
sexual, personal, criminal, and the like. Uh, but really, the thing that interests me most, which is hardest to get at, is what does it mean to be immoral or considered immoral? What are people's actual lives, people's actual subjectivities? Um, that's always harder to get at, but it's something that fascinates me, and I'm finding a lot of material. So the book's actually called, tentatively, The, the Crooked and the Straight in the City. Uh, because I'm really looking at crookedness and straightness as sort of stories about what the world uh, could be like. So they're really moral stories from the street, and streets are really central here. So that that's what I'm working on now, and it's it's really uh, whether it'll wh- how it will come together, whether it'll look like a book uh, coherently, given these three very different places uh, uh, in the same period of time. But that's it's it's a lot of fun to try. That sounds like a fascinating project, and. Uh... I hope we'll have you back here on our program to talk about it. (laughs) If I finish Um, the book, that would be a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, look, I just wanted to thank you so much for sharing your research uh, with our audience today. Um, The story of utopia and dystopia is always uh, such an important uh, uh, area to to think through and think about. So, Mark, thank you so much for It's a real uh, pleasure. And thank thank you, Eva, for your your questions and your interest in reading my book, not least. (laughs) Thanks. Take care. Bye.